Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, I'm Michael Kingswood. It's story time. Okay, getting back in the groove here. Moving on with the Pericles Conspiracy. Um, and since we're doing that, and the story bundle is still going on, the, the Visions of the Future bundle that I told you about uh, in the last episode... I uh, just wanted to point out that that's still going on until the 27th of this month. Uh, 27 February 2020 is the last day that that's going to be available. Uh, like we said, uh, 10 books for a low price, and uh, you get to see my stuff as well as a whole bunch of other cool people's. So go check that out, and of course the link will be in the show notes. Um, excuse me. The other thing to mention is, holy cow, this is episode 100. If you look at the podcast feed, there's more than 100 things you can download. Uh, that's because there's several things that I didn't label as episodes because it was little quick little here's something that's going on things or, you know, whatever. Um, didn't feel those rated actual episode numbers. But this is the 100th official episode. Uh, feeling pretty good about that. Um, I, even though I had my hiatus a couple months back, I'm still back going strong again. And shoot. I think I saw a stat that most podcasts don't even last seven episodes. Here we are, 100. Um, yeah, it's fun. What can I say? I know the uh, not a whole number, huge number of listeners out there, uh, judging by the stats, but I do know there's some consistent downloading every time one goes out, so I appreciate that. Uh, if you guys who do enjoy what I'm do- doing, uh, tell all your buddies about it. I'd appreciate that even more. Spread the word. But for now, let's get right back into reading of the book. We're starting off with chapter 36, and we'll just do two chapters this time, 36 and 37, just to keep with the overall trend. Um, Yeah, not too much else to say, so uh, sit back, enjoy, and I'll talk to you on the flip side. Chapter 36. Recruiting. Carlton pulled the throttle to idle and eased back on the stick lowering his airspeed to just above stall speed while he applied a touch of right rudder. A moment later, he felt the barest hint of contact as his wheels touched down on the runway. Dead on centerline, just like always. Or at least, just like always in his mind. But what the mind conceives and reality dictates are not always the same. He had flown more than his fair share of rough landings, landing so hard he felt like his back had nearly been thrown out from the impact. But not tonight. Tonight, he nailed it, and he could not help smiling in spite of the circumstances. Delta 7504, take taxiway Charlie. The ground controller's voice was bland, unemotional, almost as though he did not know who he was addressing or what was going on. Very likely he did not, not exactly, but he had to have noticed that Carlton had been given priority clearance through the traffic pattern and had been allowed to cut in line ahead of half a dozen planes filled with hundreds of travelers with connections to meet. He must surely be wondering who Carlton was to rate such treatment, though he could not tell from his tone or inflection. Hell, Carlton wondered that himself as he acknowledged the taxi orders and turned his craft off the runway. He never had received orders like he had this day. Well, almost never. Carlton frowned and shook his head, forcing himself to not think about those initial weeks after Pericles' last docking. 
He and Allison had put that far behind them and done a great job of it, too. Maybe he's just getting a promotion. Delta's director of pilot training had his office in Boston, conveniently, and the airline's brass could certainly pull the strings needed to get Carlton preferred treatment. But he had never heard of someone getting that treatment just to learn he had been promoted to step up the ladder. Doubts lingered as he stopped the craft in front of a ground traffic director who stood with his glowing guide rods crossing an X over his head in front of the craft and powered down the engines. He took a few minutes to secure the craft's systems, then stepped out of the cockpit and activated the controls that opened the craft's hatch and extended the boarding stairs. He stepped out onto the top step and froze cold. Parked just past the port wing was a large black limo. Allison stood beside it, looking confused. Flanking her were a man and a woman he did not recognize, both dressed in business casual, though the woman looked less than comfortable with it. They both wore calm, serious expressions that revealed nothing. What in the hell was going on? Where are the boys? Carlton whispered to Allison. They sat beside each other in the back of the limo. It was luxuriously appointed, Carlton was forced to admit. There are two guides, or guards, or whatever, were up front, and the privacy screen was up, so if he did not know any better, he could almost pretend he and Allison were out for a fancy night on the town. Almost. They're staying at Greg and Kiko's house, Allison replied. Carlton felt a surge of relief that faded as Allison spoke again. Carl, what the hell is going on? I got a call to meet you here tonight that you had something important to tell me? Carlton frowned, his worry growing stronger by the moment. First I heard of it, babe. I thought I was here for a meeting of some kind. I was thinking maybe it was a promotion, but I've never heard of this being done just to promote a guy. Allison frowned as well and clasped his hand tightly. Through the windows, the city of Boston flashed across Carlton's vision, and he thought back to all the months he had spent here during his downtime between chaining sessions up on Luna. He had grown to love this town. It had such a different feel from Quito, the only other city on earth he had lived in. He distinctly did not think about his last months there, or at least he tried not to. But it was hard to forget, even if he had tried his best to act as though it never happened. Especially with the news of what had happened with the captain, with Joe, dwelling on those sorts of things was not worth it. Where are they taking us? Carlton began to shake his head, but stopped. He recognized the building they were stopping in front of from the news a while back. It was the headquarters of Sturdivant Sequencing, a pharmaceutical firm that had made headlines not long before he and Allison had moved to Boston. What were they doing here? The car stopped, and a moment later, one of their guards, or guides, opened the door, gesturing for them to get out. Mr. and Mrs. Hirsch, said the man in a deep Australian accent, they're waiting for you. Carlton saw who was in the room he and Allison had been led to and promptly turned around to leave. Carl, wait, please just listen to me for a minute. Hell no, Joe, I don't want anything to do with this, he said over his shoulder. He grasped Allison's hand to lead her away and was surprised to find her resisting. He looked back at her, ready to snap at her to hurry the hell up, but then he saw the expression on her face and he pulled up short. What's wrong? We need to get out of here right now. Carl, Joe said. You know me. You know I didn't do those things they're saying. He knew no such thing, but he sure as hell did not want to stand around and debate it. Whatever she was into, he wanted no part of it. I thought I did. Come on, Allison. Allison pulled her hand from his grasp, and Carlton felt his jaw drop from shock. Just give her a minute, Allison replied, her eyes locked on Joe, as though both wishing she were not here and wanting to believe her at the same time. Please. Carlton muttered a curse under his breath. They're going up the river, they spent too much time with her, but he couldn't refuse Allison's entreaty. So instead of leaving, he took a seat at the table. They were in a medium-sized conference room, about five meters square, with doors on either end, that was dominated by a standard-issue conference table, complete with controls for the wall television display to the right. There were even glasses and a pitcher of ice water on the table. It was almost like a real conference. Okay, Joe, Carlton said, only realizing after he said it that he had left off the honorary captain for perhaps the first time ever. 
What do you want that's worth risking our kids growing up with parents in prison? Allison cast a disparaging look at him as she sat down beside him, but he could tell she did not fully disagree. This was one hell of a risk to take, meeting with a fugitive. For her part, Joe at least blanched. Whether from embarrassment or anger was hard to tell. Carlton hoped the former. It's not just what I want, Joe said, and pressed a button on the table's control panel. A moment later, the door he and Allison had not entered threw open, and Malcolm walked into the room. Carlton's jaw hit his chest. This is insane. Malcolm, Carlton still could not wrap his mind around the fact that his late friend was sitting there, alive, at the same table with him, raised an eyebrow. Why? You want to waltz into a secure NSA facility, Malcolm and Joe both nodded. Steal back the stuff those catmen gave us. Again, nodding. And then you want me to help you fly them up to Gagarin. More nods. Carlton threw his hands up, for a moment, speechless. Why would I ever think about doing something like that? Joe, when did she stop being the practical one, leaned forward in her chair. Carl, there isn't much time. As soon as the NSA are done with these experiments, they're going to kill all those embryos and dispose of them, and they'll all just disappear. So? Joe blinked. What do you mean, so? Don't you see how wrong what they're doing is? Carlton sighed and looked away. He saw it just fine. He was just as appalled as they were. But what they were asking, it was crazy. And not just crazy, it was dangerous. If it was just him, he might be inclined to help. He probably would help, but he and Allison had the boys to think about. He couldn't go gallivanting around, flaunting the law. It's not like he could just hop on a style liner in a month or two and... Oh, shit. Son of a bitch, Carlton breathed, and he looked back at the pair that until tonight he thought he had known so well. You're going to steal a freaking Starliner and take those things back home, aren't you? Poker faces from them both, but Joe flinched just a hair. That was exactly what they were going to do. Carlton stood up. You're both certifiable, you know that? You'll be lucky if they only lock you up and throw away the key. Carl, stop. It was the first time Allison spoke since Joe and Malcolm had described the situation and their plan. He looked at her and his heart sank. She had that look on her face. Every woman has it that looks specific to her that she reserves just for her husband, which says she's going to be stubborn. Babe, don't tell me you're actually considering this. She stopped with that look, but her tone was no less serious. What if it was little Malcolm? Carlton blinked. Her question took him aback. For that matter, it seemed to take Malcolm by surprise as well, as he gave a little start and his eyes widened. Or maybe it was the fact that he had a namesake. Whatever, that was not the point. This has nothing to do with our son, Allison. But what if it did? What if he was stuck somewhere, and the people we trusted to bring him back instead abused him, and maybe we're going to try to kill him? That hit him like a ton of bricks. Just the thought of something happening to that little guy. So either of their little guys, it both terrified and enraged him at the same time. He realized he was making fists, and forced his fingers apart. Allison could see it on his face. We need to do this, Carl. But it's such a risk. She gave him that look again. He sighed and nodded. When she was right, she was right. Chapter 37 Brisbane The airplane lifted off the tarmac, blazing away into the Boston night, and Joe sat back into her chair with a sigh mixed of relief and trepidation. It was done. Carl was on board, and the way ahead was clear. Except it was not. Eight million things could still go wrong, and any one of them could spell the end of their little caper, and more than likely, the end of them as well. Little caper, she snorted softly to herself, had there ever been a bigger caper than this? It went well, then, I take it? Joe turned her head away from the porthole next to her seat and looked at Isaac, sitting in his chair across the jet's small aisle. She nodded. He's on board. And you're sure he won't betray us? This time, her snort was loud enough to carry throughout the plane's cabin. 
Carl is nothing if not loyal. And discreet. Allison as well. Isaac frowned, but said nothing more. He sipped at his drink instead. The plane's attitude eased from the steep, nose-high angle of its initial climb into a more moderate cruise climb to its assigned altitude, filling Joe with a greater sense of ease. However much she traveled, she never had grown particularly fond of airplanes. At least not in the way that she was comfortable and fond of spacecraft. A Starliner could not just suddenly drop out of the sky. It flew on an orbital trajectory through the galaxy, even when its engines were not firing. Nor did it ever really deviate from a straight and level attitude. An airplane, though, cut off those engines, they were all going down. It was not a particularly comfortable thought. All the same, it was a good thing Isaac had access to this jet. He had been unclear whether he owned it or had just hired it, but regardless, travel through the general aviation sections of the airports had much less security hoops to jump through than the commercial side, so they were able to avoid the damning identification process that had left Malcolm stranded in Quito for so long. So now what? Isaac asked. Straight on to Brisbane? Facing him, Caddy cornered to Joe in his own seat. Jervis perked up, interested. I don't see why not, Joe replied. We have a lot of planning to do, and we'll need access to your personnel and information to do it. She inclined her head to Jervis, who grinned. Way ahead of you, mate, he said. My people are gathering up as we speak, even bringing the mole in. Just who is the mole? asked Malcolm, who sat opposite Joe, directly across the aisle from Jervis. Jervis just smiled. Wait and see. I guarantee you'll love it. Malcolm frowned, but he did not reply. Joe awoke to the airframe shuddering as the landing gear touched the runway. It took her a moment to realize where she was. At first, the unfamiliar faux wood of the cabin ceiling made her blink in surprise, and she felt a momentary panic. Then memory returned, and she relaxed. A little bit. Through her little porthole, the world quickly slowed as the pilot applied the brakes, then turned off onto the taxiway. Welcome to Bris Vegas, Jervis quipped. He looked wide awake, as though he had gotten a very good night's sleep, showered, had breakfast, and was ready to get going. It made Joe want to hit him. Twenty-plus hours on this little plane, lavish as it was, it was still small, was not her idea of comfort, no matter how soft the seats and how far back they reclined. She had a kink in the middle of her back, between her shoulder blades, and her skin felt sticky. She was in dire need of a shower. Joe sat up, pushing the button to raise her seat to a sitting position, and rolled her shoulders. What time is it? Jervis grinned at her. Ten o'clock, right on schedule. He glanced up forward toward the cockpit. I really ought to fly in one of these more often. It's more timely than the commercial birds. From his seat, Isaac snorted. You would not like the bill. He looked as ruffled as Joe felt. Clearly, he had just awoken as well. Jervis shrugged. Likely not. Malcolm and Becky were still asleep, for a wonder. After the plane stopped and the flight crew opened the hatch, they had to shake the pair of them awake. <laughs> Amazing. The sun shone brightly as Joe exited and descended the stairs. Lately, she had spent her time in the northern hemisphere when she was not actually on the equator in Quito, so Joe found herself a bit disoriented at first. Her instincts wanted to tell her that the sun, nearing its zenith in the sky to her left as she left the plane, was pointing her toward the south. It took a moment to recall that as Australia set, the ecliptic plane lay to the north. It made her pause for a moment to rearrange her thinking. A van was waiting for them outside the fixed-based operation, Reliance Aviation it was called, and they piled in. The driver was a lanky man with graying blonde hair and a wry smile who greeted them with a cheery g'day but said little else. As soon as they were all inside, he put the van in gear and set off. Joe settled back onto her seat and looked at Jervis. Why do you call it Briz Vegas? He truckled and shrugged. We've called her that for years, he said. Centuries. Started because of the casino downtown by the river and all the tourists who came through. The casino was destroyed in the Tribune Wars, but the name stuck anyway. 
That made sense, to an extent. The rest of the ride was filled with small talk. Jervis pointed out landmarks as he drove past and shared tidbits of local lore. In general, he seemed to like playing the tour guide. Maybe it was because so few opportunities arose to do so. Joe recalled a bit of Australian history. Not much, but a bit. Brisbane, during the Tribune Wars, was reduced to nearly rubble. The seat of state government had moved during the wars, and there was no reason to move it back after. Trade had moved on as well, and other cities further up the coast, Townsville and Cairns, if she remembered correctly, drew in the tourists that had once flocked to Brisbane. Over the years, the city had been rebuilt, but it never regained the stature it once had, which seemed to make perfect sense for their context, as Joe thought about it. The NSA's lab would need to be near a town for logistics support, but ideally not a large one. Large cities meant lots of people, and lots of people meant more people who might find out about the place, or accidentally linger too close, or cause any number of problems. A modest town would be a much more suitable place for a secret facility. So how far is the lab from here? Jervis looked sidelong at her. A good two days' drive. Joe blinked and set aside the theory she had just been contemplating. Ah. Jervis smirked slightly and chuckled. It's a big country, mate. The van left them in front of a small commercial building in Brisbane's western suburbs. It was low, only two stories, painted a faint shade of blue, and windowless, except for a few small openings at the corners of the second floor. Not exactly inviting. But then, the neighborhood was not that great either. Not that it was run down per se, but everything was just noticeably in a slight state of disrepair. The paint was starting to peel, the grass had not been mowed in a couple weeks, the windows were smudgy. Not completely neglected, but just little enough maintenance that a person knew things were not going as well here as they could have been. Joe looked around and frowned. Nice place. Jervis gave her a little smile and shrugged slightly. It's not much, but it's home. He turned and led the way to the building's front door. Shall we? Becky and Isaac moved to follow without comment. Malcolm remained and shared a glance with Joe. You all right? he asked. Joe nodded. After you. He swept out his arm gallantly, indicating she should lead the way. Joe could not help but laugh as she followed the others into Jervis's lair. Malcolm did as well. So, yep, off to Brisbane, good old Australia. I spent a bunch of time in Australia, in, in Brisbane in particular. Um, pulled in there on my submarine twice, and uh, <laughs> uh, some interesting memories there. Uh, as with tends to happen with sailors, U.S. sailors, in the uh, going into Australia, and part of my story involves a girl. <laughs> it didn't work out at all. I, mean, I botched it completely. And it probably wouldn't have worked even if I hadn't botched it, man. But but uh, <laughs> I got a little bit semi-obsessed with this girl. She was a nurse, and she was a stripper. And she, well, obviously she was hot and really smart. And <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, it, 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 chicanery. But uh, actually flew back. I came back from deployment, flew back to Brisbane uh, to see... to try to make things work with her and see another friend that I had met there. And I flew up to Cannes to dive the barrier reef. And then uh, I went on shore duty and, you know, never heard from uh, the the girl I was super interested in. Uh, again, the the other girl who was just a friend, but a cool girl that I hung out with there, She uh, we kept in touch for a while, then I lost track of her around the time that I met my now ex-wife. Imagine how that works. But, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but then I flew back again. I was on short duty for a couple of years. And, uh, my, I flew back again 
right before I went to my next submarine, which I actually met that even though there was an East Coast boat, I met them in San Diego because they're on the Pacific deployment. And so I went to San Diego, did a couple of uh, training things before I was going to meet them and because they were at sea. And I said, you know, I'm going to fly back down to Brisbane, see my friend. The other thing I was thinking was I would go and uh, look at real estate because Australian law, you can't buy, if you're a foreigner, you can't buy property there unless it's new construction. And when I was down there, uh, the, the second time after my deployment, when I did the scuba diving thing, uh, me and the girl I was trying to make things work with drove down to the Gold Coast, south of Brisbane. And I was, she was looking to buy a place there. And I was amazed at how cheap real estate was there. It's a beach town, big beach town, but it's super cheap real estate. And of course, at the time, the uh, exchange rate was like one U.S. dollar was 1.7 Australian. So I was living large and having a good old time. And man, things are cheap down here. Um, but at the time, uh, yeah, I was like, man, it might be cool to buy a property here someday. But I didn't have the, you know, didn't really have the resources at the time. When I came back after my shore duty, was getting ready to go be a department head. I had just sold uh, some property of my own that I had bought in, in uh, during my first sea tour. And uh, sitting on a big chunk of cash, I'm like, I'm going to get that investment property in Brisbane. And I went down there with my friend touring around and went down to the Gold Coast. And holy smokes, it had gotten expensive in the in the three and a half years <laughs> since I had left. And I went up to the Sunshine Coast and holy cow, holy cow, it was expensive again. And he's even more And I was like, son of a gun. I can't afford anything. So I, but I did find, found this condo I thought would be cool. And I did a whole business analysis of occupation rates on the Gold Coast and <coughs> expected uh, vacation rental amounts I could get. And I sent sent this spreadsheet off to all my buddies saying, hey, who wants to go in with me on an investment property down here? We can make some bank. And I, doing my analysis, I was pretty convinced we could make some good money on it and we could make a good profit of it. But I needed other people to come in with me to... Uh, you know, qualify for that big a loan and also to help out with the down payment. <coughs> I had enough to probably cover the down payment, but of course you don't want to spend all your money, right? So, but nobody else was interested and it just ended up being, oh, well, maybe later. Of course, never later never came, eh, but it is what it is. Anyway, so that's my, my whole uh, Australia experience. I like it a lot down there. Great people, good fun, good weather. And, uh, Obviously, good beer, but not Foster's. You Americans out there, so you remember those freaking beer commercials from back in the day? Foster's, Australian for beer. No, they don't drink that stuff. They drink good stuff down there. Yeah, <coughs> um, and, uh, and good rum and really good wine. Got into Australian. I was into Australian wine before I ever went there, but I got in more into Australian wine since then. I'm a bit of a wino, so that's sort of where I lean. Um, also picked up Cuban cigars there for the first time ever, which is <laughs> also fun. Um, I've always, interestingly enough, never been that impressed with Cuban cigars. Um, you know, Castro came over and all the Cuban fan, Castro took over Cuba and all the good cigar families fled, right? So they still have the good soil for, for growing tobacco leaves and stuff down there. But all the people who really knew what they were doing said, screw this, we're out of here. And so you get... The Cuban cigars I've had, I've always enjoyed less than the ones I've gotten from elsewhere in the Caribbean and Central America. Maybe that's why. I don't know. It's got nothing to do with this story. 
it's just, you know, fun factoids. Um, yeah, so starting to line things up here. Um, as you can see, you now know what the caper is. And uh, clearly going to be some, some risks involved. But, eh, yeah, I'm sure everything will be fine. Nothing could possibly go wrong with breaking into a secure government facility and trying to smuggle stuff off planet. No, no, no worry at all. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. And, you know, there are 60, I was wrong, there are 63 chapters in the book. So, <coughs> excuse me, clearly we got a little ways to go now. Um, that's all I got for this time. Uh, again, go check out that story bundle, storybundle.com slash sci-fi. It's called Visions of the Future. So you can get this book, but also nine others. Uh, great writers, better than me, involved in it. And uh, also you can get to do support that uh, cool Able Gamers charity, uh, which is always a good thing to do as well. Um, again, the link will be in the show notes. Um, but if you don't want to do that, cool. Just come back next week and we'll continue on. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>